you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to continue our study here in Ruth. And we'll begin by reading the entirety of chapter 3. So we'll begin reading in, in Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose, whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winneth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man." until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am a near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then I will do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it be known that a woman, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then, then said she, Stand still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest till he have finished this thing today. So, it's an interesting chapter. Uh, there's a lot here for us to unpack. But for us to really understand the message of chapter 3, we really need to have a good understanding of chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to do a little bit of review, just talk about chapters 1 and 2. The title of the message today is Hope, Trust, and Strategic Righteousness. Hope, Trust, and Strategic Righteousness. And hope is going to be really the central theme uh, of the message today and of chapter 3, we're going to see how differently that God's people act 
when they have hope and when they are focused on their hope in Christ and in the Lord. So in chapter 1, that's why it's important for us to know what chapter 1 and chapter 2 were about. Because if you remember in chapter 1, there wasn't a lot of hope going on in the life of Naomi in chapter 1. She was downcast. She said, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. I mean, she was Eeyore all day long. I have no reason to live. I mean, we're going to go back to our homeland, but there's nothing there for you. There's nothing there for me. Uh, It's just, you know, it's all doom and gloom. So not really a hopeful person. Uh, You wouldn't call Naomi somebody you would want to have a conversation with, right? You wouldn't just walk up and start a conversation. She, it was all doom and gloom. Then you remember in chapter 2 as they come back and Ruth goes out and and works in the field. She comes home and tells Naomi, look, I worked in the field of this guy named Boaz. And, man, he took care of me and he made sure nobody bothered me. And he sent me home with all this food and all of these things. And all of a sudden there's this big ray of sunshine coming through. And it changes Naomi. And at the end of chapter 2, you remember, she had that big statement about, well, God is sovereign, and maybe everything's not bitter. And, and so her theology hadn't changed as far as the sovereignty of God. She said that in chapter 1, too. She said, look, God's in control of all things, and he's just dealing bitterly with me, and that's just the way it is. Uh, and, but then she changed and said, you know, maybe, maybe there's more to it at the end of chapter 2. So we're going to see now that's going to change Naomi's behavior, and that's where we start, really, in Ruth chapter 3, is with Naomi and, and her change. So um, we're going to use this term, hope, trust, and strategic righteousness. So that last term, uh, I'm borrowing that. Um, John Piper uses it, strategic right, righteousness. There's also uh, a whole other commentary that I read that called it strategic actions, He just called it strategic actions. So very similar there. Uh, But strategic righteousness means um, that when we're filled with hope, there's going to be actions that are going to come out. Uh, We're going to make plans and we're going to move forward in a way because we trust God uh, with our life. And we're not just going to sit around. If we really have true hope, hope doesn't make you lazy. And hope doesn't make you sit around and say, well, God's going to take care of everything. and, And it's just all predetermined and and uh, that's, that's not the way that it works. So we're going to see that in the life of Naomi and of Ruth and of Boaz, how their hope uh, leads them to strategic righteousness. Because they trust God and because they have hope in that, it leads them to righteous actions. So uh, they are when they're filled with the sovereign goodness of God, they manifest what we're calling strategic righteousness. So Let's define those terms a little bit. Righteousness is doing what is good and right, a desire for doing what is appropriate when God is taken into account as sovereign and merciful. So because we have hope in God, because we trust God, because trust is just really another word for faith, because we have faith in God, righteousness is doing what God said is good and right. Um, Did you know that sometimes that might not seem um, the best path to you? as a human being in your own human will, that doing the right thing sometimes seems opposite to what your flesh is going to want to do. So when we say righteousness, it's doing right regardless of what it seems like to you just because you trust God and your hope is in Him. And so why do we call it strategic? Well, righteousness is doing what's good and right. We just said that. Strategic is an intentional, purposeful, it's, uh, there's planning involved, 
because there's a, there's a passive righteousness which is just basically simply avoiding evil. So, in other words, I'm going to be righteous because I'm just going to avoid everything. I'm just going to kind of sit still and not do anything and, and call that righteousness. But there's an active righteousness. That's, that's what we would say this strategic is. It's intentional, that's purposeful, not just about avoiding evil, but also doing good. So it's, it's something that takes action. Strategic righteousness takes initiative and, um, and moves forward in doing things that are right because our hope is in God. So I want to read you this quote. I think he summed it up really well. It's a quote from John Piper. He said this about it. One of the lessons I learned from Ruth chapter 3 is that hope helps us to dream. Hope helps us think up ways to do good. So you start using your imagination. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you start thinking up ways to do good. Hope helps us pursue our ventures with virtue and integrity. It's hopelessness that makes people think they have to lie and steal and seize uh, illicit pleasures for the moment. So those with hope don't have to do that. So he's drawing the contrast there between those with hope and those without hope. He said those with hope, they go about their life and all the things in their life and all the adventures that they get on with virtue and integrity. Those with hopelessness, they think that they have to come up with their own way. So they end up, well, I, I got to lie, I got to steal, I got to cheat, I got to do whatever I, I can to get ahead. That's, that's hopelessness. So hope, based on the confidence that God is sovereign and God is for us, gives us a trust-backed confidence that leads to a bold, righteous action. Now, those are my words, so I'm going to try to unpack them for you. Hope, based on the confidence that God is a sovereign God and is for us, gives us a trust-backed confidence that leads to bold, righteous action. So in layman's term, this is what that means. Hope in God frees us to trust God's way and leads us to it. So if you have hope in God, that frees you to trust God in a way that leads you to action. And so that's what we're going to see in Naomi in verses 1 through 5, in Ruth in verses 6 through 9, and in Boaz in verses 10 through 15. And then we're going to close out with a practical application of how, how do we apply that in our life, uh, living with Christian hope. So the first thing we want to look at this morning is Naomi's strategic righteousness now. Naomi's strategic righteousness, and this is in verses 1 through 5. And so I'm not going to go back through and read the entire verses 1 through 5 since we've already read it. But just to give you a basic idea, she goes to Ruth. And isn't this a change of mindset? You remember What did she tell Ruth when they were in Moab? She said, Ruth, you might as well not come back with me. There's nobody for you to marry. Remember that? And then when they got back, did she do anything? No, she didn't do anything. Ruth had to take the initiative and say, I'm going to go out and make us a living somehow because we got to eat. You know, Naomi was just in the dregs of hopelessness and, and despair and in depression. So Ruth um, had to go out. Well, now all of a sudden, Naomi's hope has been rekindled. And so we see her taking action in the first of chapter 3. So Naomi says to Ruth, her, my daughter, Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? In other words, I'm going to get busy, and I'm going to help you get a better situation. I'm going to find a husband for you <coughs> so that things will be well with you. And then she says, you know, so Boaz, the guy that you've been kind of hanging out with and, 
and been uh, in his fields working. He actually is a relative of ours. He can be a near kinsman. So she comes up with this plan. Now, this is where this message gets difficult um, because this plan is really interesting at face value. Um, you know, there's no other way to put it. So I'm just going to tell you it's, there's, there's a lot more to it, and we're going to get to it. But on face value, I think it's good for you to be shocked a little bit at her plan. Her plan is this. She says, Ruth, you need to take a shower, get really dressed up, do your hair, put on, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, make yourself look as attractive as possible, and I want you to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz is. But I don't want you to see him right away. I want you to hide from him until it's in the middle of the night. And then I want you to go in where he's sleeping after he has filled himself up with food and drank. And they, they had a festival at the harvest, and so he's there with his workers, and they're having this big celebration. So he's eaten, and he's drank, and he lays down to sleep. And I want you to wait till he goes to sleep, and I want you to go in and uncover his feet. And I want you to lay down and then just do whatever he says to do at that point. That's Naomi's plan. Now, that's not my plan. <laughs> that's not, I didn't make that up. That's scripture. If you don't believe me, go back and read it again. It's hard, you know, we're sitting there going, are we reading the Bible? You know, is that, is she really telling a young lady to do this? Is that right? But that's the truth. So that's what happens. So that's Naomi's strategic righteousness. And so the big question then is how can we call it strategic righteousness? Well, a couple of things we can learn from this. The first one is real easy, so I'll get it out of the way first. The sheer fact that Naomi now has a strategy teaches us something. It tells us that, she has regained hope because people who feel like victims don't make plans. People who feel like victims, they don't make plans. And Naomi's not, no longer feeling like a victim, like God's out to get her, like God's the, you know, the mean kid with the magnifying glass burning the anthill. She doesn't feel that way anymore. So because of that, she's making plans. Remember, she said, this is the quote, The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. So because of that, she conceived no strategy for the future poor poor pitiful me was kind of her mindset so one of the terrible effects of depression is the inability to move purposefully and hopefully into the future so before we get into the details of her strategy just the simple fact that she began to make plans and try to help Ruth I think is something that we can learn we should always be moving forward and planning for the future and moving forward with strategic righteousness um, she is now concerned about Ruth and about her future because she begins to think about the future. I think this is important for us individually, and it's also important uh, for churches. You know, if churches get in a mindset where there's no hope, um, they get into, I love what one of the people said, they called it a maintenance mentality. We're just here kind of maintaining things. There's no hope for growth. There's no hope for spiritual growth. There's no hope for growth in number. And so churches get in a maintenance mentality and just go through the motions year in, year out. Um, and that's probably because there's a lack of hope. And we can do the same thing individually. Have you ever been around somebody who was truly depressed? That's a hard thing to see. It's real, by the way. That's a real thing. Um, it can even be a clinical thing, by the way. Uh, for those who try to say that, you know, Christians can't be depressed, you're wrong. Uh, the Bible would tell you that. You're wrong on that. There, there can be depression, and it's a serious thing. It needs to be dealt with seriously. But the answer to that is hope uh, and where our hope lies and what our hope is in. That's the answer to depression. So just the simple fact that Naomi has a plan is, is number one. Number two is the plan itself. And 
it's odd. There's no doubt about that. So she took the initiative to find a husband for Ruth. But this strategy that she comes up with is, is really what we would call interesting. So Boaz, he is a kinsman. Therefore, he's the likely candidate uh, to be Ruth's husband. And the way the family name and family inheritance will stay in the family according to Hebrew custom. So Naomi's aim is clear. Her, her motive in this is clear. It's to win for Ruth a godly husband and secure future and, and preserve the family line. So she has a lot of things involved in this. So she tells Ruth, you know, exactly what I told you about you go in, you do all of this, and you do what he tells you to do. So what, what is, there's a couple of things that are really clear here and one thing that's not. It's clear that Naomi's way of trying to get Boaz to marry Ruth uh, is is something that probably we wouldn't on the face value agree with, but it's not clear why she said it this way. So is it something that is highly suggestive? Is it something that Boaz is going to react with moral indignation at? Like, what are you doing? You know, why are you here? This is not right. Um, how How is he going to react to this? That's all part of the question, and there's going to be clues later on in the chapter uh, on the question of why she would take this bold action but I think the writer really wanted us to feel suspense and ambiguity about that because even in the Hebrew language, it's just as ambiguous as in the English. It's, you read it and you would kind of say, you know, what in the world's going on here? Why would she do this? So whatever Naomi's motive was in the method that she chose, the situation is one that it, it could lead to, just from our mindset and our looking at the situation, it could lead to, a situation of a stunning improper relationship or it could lead to a stunning scene of purity integrity and self-control and so we're going to see which one of those takes place but uh, I want to read I think I forgot to write down this uh, quote who I got it from but I think it's Philpot uh, I wrote on his commentary on Ruth he said uh, for all readers of Ruth, you need to read Deuteronomy 25 5 through 10. I'm not going to take the time to do that but if you go back Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, it goes through all of these laws about how that a, that a near kinsman needs to come in and raise up um, a dead husband's widow. It, it's all about that. So he said, you need to read that. And then he, this is the quote, remove from the mind of the Christian reader every idea of indelicacy and improper behavior in Naomi's counsel to Ruth. It is worthy remark that this law was considered so universally binding and so sacredly attended to that it was not lost sight of in the days of our blessed Lord in Matthew 22, 23, and 24. So what he's saying there is from our mindset and just our view of this, it looks really improper. It looks like a bad plan, just to be honest about it. You know, if I was going to go find a husband for my daughter, that's probably not how I'm going to do it. You know, I'm, well, you look, you just need to go surprise this guy in the middle of the night and you need to uncover his feet and lay down and just do whatever he tells you to do. That doesn't sound like a Christian plan to me. But you have to understand that it was different. The, the culture was different. The laws were different. This would have been something that was absolutely known by Boaz. Probably not Ruth. That's the interesting part to me personally is it probably not Ruth. She had to really trust Naomi in this. Remember, she's an outsider. She is a, she's a foreigner. But she trusted Naomi and she did what Naomi said to do, even in spite of that. So he says basically... There's, there's nothing improper about it when you look at it in, in the right context. And, and even with that, I think 
all of that being true, there was still an opportunity there for something improper to take place. And I think we learned from that as well. We'll get to that later on. I think both Ruth and Boaz show incredible integrity in the situation uh, and even in the way that they deal with one another. So that is Naomi's strategic righteousness. And like we said, the fact that she had a plan and then secondly, this unique plan is really her trusting in God. It's hard for us to see at face value, but it's really her trusting in the way God had designed for things to work. In this culture at this time, that's the way God had designed it. The law was that this was to take place. So that's what she was leaning on and trusting in. That's how her hope was restored. Now, secondly, we see Ruth's strategic righteousness in verses 6 through 9. And I will go back and read that passage for us. 6 through 9, it says, and she went down. So, so she hears this plan by Naomi. And she's going to go carry it out. She went down to the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and she snuck in there, uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. So evidently some time goes by uh, with her laying at his feet. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. So that's, this is Ruth's part in the story. So she kind of ad-libs a little bit here, doesn't she? she? She does all of Naomi's plan, but what did, what did Naomi tell her? She said, you just go in there and lay down, and then what did she say the last thing? She said, Boaz is going to tell you what to do. Now, at that point... You don't have to say anything. You just be silent, and Boaz is going to tell you what to do. That's not exactly what Ruth does. So she proves here by the way that she speaks up that she is taking initiative too. She's not just doing what uh, Naomi wants her to do. She's taking some initiative too, and she wants to make it clear to Boaz as to why she is there. So in case you hadn't figured this out yet, this is really interesting. This is Ruth making a proposal of marriage to Boaz. So what's going on here? She's coming in and saying, you're a near kinsman, and I want you to marry me and, and do the part of a kinsman. Now, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Talking about bold. That's pretty bold. Here she is, a widow from a foreign country, broken, has nothing. Her and Naomi are really destitute, and she's going to this really rich man at the threshing floor and basically, uh, for all intents and purposes, proposing marriage. She says, you're the redeemer. You're the one that can redeem our inheritance and family name from being lost. And I want you to fill that role for me. I want you to be my redeemer. I want you to spread your skirt over me. Now, you know, this could be seen in a lot of different ways as well. But really, this goes back to you have to understand Deuteronomy chapter 25. And that's what I'm saying here. What this really is, is her telling Boaz, you're the right guy. You're, you're the guy who can redeem me. It has to be you. You're the near kinsman. So she uses this terminology, spread your skirt over me. And we've already kind of talked about this a little bit in chapter 2, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But there's, there's something that is really profound about that phrase, spread your skirt over me. It, it occurs uh, in relation to uh, God in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8 when God is talking and he's describing Israel as a young maiden that he took for his wife says when I passed by you again and looked upon you behold you were at the age for love 
and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, yea, and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. So similar circumstance there, but, but here Ruth is saying, I want you to spread your skirt over me, Boaz, so that I become yours. I become covenant with you. That's what I'm saying. It's basically a marriage proposal. She's saying, Boaz, I want you to have a covenant with me of marriage, and I want to become your wife. I would like to be the one you pledge your faithfulness to and whom, with whom you make a marriage covenant. But remember back in the previous chapter, Boaz had already used this terminology one time. Isn't that interesting how Ruth picked up his terminology and then used it when she came to him in the way that Naomi said? Remember in the previous chapter um, when Boaz talked to Ruth, Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord recompense you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You remember that? Under whose wing, that, that word is the same word. Wings and skirt are the same word. No difference. So she's using the exact same language. She's saying, I want to take refuge under your wings. And what an amazing thing we see here that even though Ruth is saying, I want to take refuge under your wing, Boaz, Boaz has already told her the real truth is she's taking refuge under the wings of God, that Boaz is just the instrument in the situation. So, um, when she says, why have I found favor in your eyes, Boaz answered, because you've come to take refuge under the wings of God. And now when she comes to him in the next chapter, she uses that same language as she asks him to be her kinsman redeemer. So reading between the lines of chapter 2 and 3, this is basically what's going on. Ruth has told Naomi about the words of Boaz in chapter 2 and you can kind of see how the more that, that she thinks about this, they both become convinced that those, those words of Boaz in chapter 2 are loaded with discerning, understated, subtle, loving intentions. And it's, not, it's probably not easy. Remember, there's a big age difference here, too. Remember that. Boaz is much older than Ruth, so probably not very easy for him to express interest or, or love to a younger woman. But Boaz did that by deeds of kindness and subtle words of admiration. He treated Ruth as though she were already his, and he waited. Now, that's, that's, that's powerful when you think about it. He treated her as though she was already his, and then he patiently waited. And it seems that Naomi, and, and maybe Ruth, interpreted this correctly after some thought, and especially after their hope had been restored and their depression ended. Uh, Naomi decides upon a response that's just as subtle and just as profound as Boaz's words to her in chapter 2. So, you know, she will say it with an action that's, that's very bold. She comes to him and basically says, I want to place myself under your wing, under your skirt, under your protection. I want you to be a redeemer to me. So can you imagine how intense that moment must have been? She's doing what Naomi told her, but she goes in the middle of the night. It's dark. She's going up to this man, and he wakes up, and he's startled. He says, who are you? And this is the moment of truth. Ruth says, well, I'm Ruth. I'm your handmaid, and I want to be your wife. I mean, talking about intense, you, that's one of those times when you're waiting on an answer, right? You know, that's pretty intense. Um, for those of you who've never had to propose to somebody, that's some intense moments. You Don't pause if you're a woman, please. That's not fair. It's not right. Don't do that. The pause is not good. You're waiting on every second. You're just, come on, please. You know, I want this to work out, right? Very similar here. This was an intense moment. 
when Ruth comes and she basically lays it all before Boaz. She just says, you're my hope. You're who I trust in to be my redeemer. And I want to be in a relationship with you. So that's what's going on here. Imagine how intense that would be. I'm Ruth. Please spread your wing over your maidservant. So we've had moments like that, ones of extreme significance where we've kind of laid it all on the line. And Ruth comes here hoping that she and Naomi have interpreted all the clues from Boaz correctly. And she's literally throwing herself at his feet and submitting to him and trusting him as her redeemer. Now, before we move on, I hope I don't have to fill in the blank here for you. This is pretty easy, okay? Have you ever come to that point in your life when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ where you've come to him and said, I'm broken. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm a foreigner. I have no, no real right. However, Ruth comes confidently, doesn't she? She comes confident because she knows that Ruth, Naomi knows the law. And so there's a brokenness and there's a need and there is um, a willingness to submit. But at the same time, there's a confidence. And it's the same way when we come to Christ. And if you didn't come to Christ that way, you know, that there's a problem there. Because that's what it really means to come to Christ is that we come and we submit to him as the Lord of our life and as our Redeemer. We ask for him to spread his wing over us. But we can do that with confidence because of who he is. And the same thing with Boaz. Because of who Boaz is, because he's family, because he's that kinsman Redeemer, she can come and say that with confidence. So how powerful that is, this picture of the gospel that we have here in the book of Ruth as we have our, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we come to under and take shelter under his wing. It's the same way that Ruth does with Boaz here. Now, um, one more quote here for you, because I think he sums it up really good. I hope by seeing the, both of these things, we kind of started out joking about Naomi's plan a little bit, but I love what Piper said about it here. He said, anybody who thinks that a sinful-minded woman and a finagling mother-in-law are at work here are on another planet. All is subtle, all is righteous, and all is strategic. So what looked to us on the surface as a pretty crazy plan and something that could lead to a lot of trouble really was strategic righteousness. It was Naomi submitting to God's plan and what he had laid forth for a widow in Deuteronomy 25. So that is Ruth's strategic righteousness. So she takes the initiative she goes a little farther even than what Naomi had said, and she personally makes this plea to Boaz. And so now we're going to see his response. It's like I said, you know, you kind of, she lays this out there, and she's waiting on a response. So what is the response from Boaz? We find that in verse 10. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than thou did at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or or rich so he's stalling a little bit here but once again we see him it's, it's the way Boaz dealt with Ruth he's giving her compliment after compliment he's saying you're doing things the right way you're a virtuous woman it's basically what he's saying so then he says and now my daughter he gives her a direct answer fear not I will do to thee all that thou requirest for all the city of my people know, doth know that thou art a virtuous woman so so far good news for Ruth right She's, he says, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do what you've asked. I am going to be the near kinsman to you. I'm going to um, 
play that role for you, then there comes a problem. So in verse 12 and 13 and, and shortly after, he says, that's my intention. That's what I want to do. However, there's a little problem here. There's somebody who's a closer kinsman than I am. And so Boaz shows a lot of righteousness and a lot of integrity and a lot of self-restraint and control here because what he says is, this can't happen yet. I've got to do all things the right way. We've got to make this right. So he tells her to just tarry there. He's very careful with Ruth's reputation. Because he can't be the near kinsman to her, he doesn't want anybody to say that there's anything untoward. There wouldn't have been a problem if he could have just agreed right on the spot and said there wouldn't have been a problem. But now he doesn't want anybody to think anything untoward's going on. So he says, look, you stay here tonight. You're going to get up before sunlight. And you're going to get out of here. And that way nobody can say anything untoward about you and the situation, and I'm going to make this right. I'm going to go take care of this business about the near kinsman. So he got the, a lot of the rest of the chapter is him going and taking care of that, that part. He says, I'm going to do that, and then she goes back to Naomi. And chapter 4 is going to be where we see him going through that process. So his, his strategic righteousness is in the way that he responds to Ruth. So in American life today, what is the mantra of most people in American life today? If it feels good, do it. You know, if, if it's, if, if God, if an opportunity presents itself, you just take it no matter what. You know, I mean, it must be right because the opportunity has presented itself. Well, what do we see in Boaz and Ruth? We don't see that at all, do we? We see a lot of integrity and self-control in the way that they deal with one another. They are examples of integrity and, and of faithfulness in relationships. So we would want to emulate Boaz and, and emulate Ruth in the way that, that we deal with one another. Subtle and perceptive in communication, powerful in self-control, and committed to righteousness. Um, I'll just say it, that there's not a lot of that in our society today. I mean, there's not a lot of respect for marriage. There's not a lot of respect or restraint or, um, or anything for what happens before marriage. There are very few people who take all that seriously. It's just, oh, well, that's just not the culture anymore. Well, it doesn't matter what the culture says. What it matters is what God says. And to Boaz, he said, we're going to do things the right way. That's how this is going to go. There's a nearer kinsman, and I've got to deal with that before I can, can make any promises to you. I'll, my intention is to do that. I want you to understand that. But at the same time, we have to do things in the right way. So that's Boaz's strategic righteousness. So what does it mean then to live with Christian hope? So we've kind of worked our way through the chapter, what the characters are doing, how they have strategic righteousness in the whole situation. But remember the title of our message is about hope and trust and how that informs and impacts and empowers strategic righteousness in our lives, just like it did in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. So basically what we're doing now, we're going to practically apply this story and how we can apply that to our own lives. I think that's really important for us. We can look at the story and say, man, that's a great story, and I'm, I'm glad they acted in that way. But what we really want to do is learn from it ourselves and how do we do this. So <coughs> imagine if we really were a people of hope. Just imagine for a minute, because I promise you, we, I think the people in this room do have hope, and I think you have Christian hope. But imagine if you really had Christian hope, and you, that was the focus of your whole life, was that you were a hopeful person 
in Christ. Now, what that's talking about is not just optimism or wishful thinking. So we're not talking about are you a glass half full person or a glass half empty person or what I like to call a realist, which is half a glass of water. You know, that some people say the glass half full, some people say half empty. Realists say it's just half a glass of water. It's not either way. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Christian hope is a hope that is born from the Spirit of God that dwells in you. It's a different kind of hope. It's based upon God and what, who God is more than what we desire. So we need to unpack that a little bit more. What does that person look like? Well, the stock market falls, and you're talking to all your friends, and you're, you're backing them off the ledge because you're going to move forward in hope because you have confidence in a future that's guided by God. So what's the problem with those other people who are depressed? You know, I don't know if you studied this in history or not, but the stock market fell. What happened? There's people jumping out of buildings, right? Stock market crashed. They're jumping out of buildings. They're committing suicide. Their hope was gone because all their money was gone. Well, that's hope in something that can be taken away very quickly. Other, you know, people, you know, you see somebody that has a loss, um, and pain and loss and grief are really difficult, but some people that leaves in despair, just complete despair. And others, they grieve, but they grieve with hope because their hope is based in the character of God that this life is not what it's all about, that there's a future and, and something that's even better that Paul says is not worthy to be compared with this life. Some people have fear over decisions that they have to make. And you pray and you search the word of God and then you move forward if you're a person of hope because you hope in the goodness of God. You believe in a God that is sovereign and, and whatever happens, uh, he is going to make good in your life. So what a difference it would make in your life if you were a person of hope. So the question then becomes, do people around you and around me see us as people of hope? Or do others see us as people who are like Naomi in chapter 1? So ask yourself that question. If somebody were to just... Some random person that never met you and spent a month around you, would they write chapter 1 or would they write chapter 3? That's a hard question. I'm, I'm just telling you, that's hard. It's difficult. If we're honest about it, it's really difficult for us to, to say that we would be a chapter 3 person, not a chapter 1 person. So do people see you as a person of hope? So we're going to real quickly and wrap up here. We're going to look at four things that Christian hope is based on and is in our life. So the first one is that Christian hope is based upon the character of God. So number one, for you to be a person of hope, for you to be someone who's characterized by hope, who has true Christian hope, not like we said, not optimism, not a carelessness, that's not what we're talking about at all, but Christian hope is based upon the character of God. Our hope is not based on material things, bank accounts, jobs, cars. All of those things are fleeting. And if you don't believe it, you know, you might get a really good taste of that coming up pretty soon because the economy is not looking real good. Um, uh, it might be good for us right now. By next year, our economy could crash. The dollar could be worthless. I don't know about you. That impacted me pretty, pretty bad, you know, if the dollar became worthless. I don't know about you. I don't have a lot of gold in a safe anywhere. I don't have any way to really do anything other than than my job well you know if, if the economy crashes our jobs could be gone all of those things so if we're dependent upon that that can be taken away very easily 
But if our hope is based on the character of God and who he is, that's something that never changes. You see how that's important? <laughs> if your hope is in something that never changes, your hope is sure. If your hope is in things that can be taken away, then you know, that's not a sure hope. Um, so Naomi's hope uh, in this passage of scripture is based upon seeing the hand of God in her life. And now she is full of hope. God has brought this, her to this, though, through great trial. So I also want to say this. If you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of hope, don't get discouraged and think, well, he's not talking to me because I'm, I'm a chapter one right now. I'm Naomi in chapter one. Well, God brought Naomi through that to bring her to the place that she was. All of those things, God wove it like a, like a tapestry in her life and brought her to this place of trust and hope in him. And so sometimes we have to go through those things too. In fact... That's something that scares me quite a bit, you know, is that if, boy, if my hope is not where it should be, you know, what is God, what is going to have to take place in my life before I trust God, before I say my hope is in the Lord? That's a scary thing to think about. I hope it would not take the removal of family and friends and job and money and all of those things. In Naomi's life, look what happened. She lost her husband. She lost both her sons. She had to move back home broken, which was embarrassing, I'm sure, in front of all the people that she knew coming home broken. All of those things had to happen for her to get to a place where she said, my trust and my hope is in the Lord. I want to read something on this topic about uh, that Christian hope is based on the character of God. It's a little bit difficult, but if, if hopefully you can glean from it, and if you can't, you can just ignore it. It's from uh, Thomas uh, Aquinas. He said this, Wherefore the good which we ought to hope for from God properly and chiefly is the infinite good, which is proportionate to the power of our divine helper, since it belongs to an infinite power to lead anyone to an infinite good. Such a good is eternal life, which consists in the enjoyment of God himself. For we should hope from him for nothing less than himself, since he is goodness, whereby he imparts good things to his creatures, to his creature in no less than his essence therefore the proper and principal object of hope is eternal happiness in god himself so what he's saying here is look ultimately god is good because he brings us to himself <laughs> because he's uh, our, all our happiness needs to be in that that's an amazing he had a way with words there but that's really what he's saying in short he's saying that our joy is connected to our hope which is connected to god because of who God is and God can always back up what he says because he's infinitely powerful he's able to deliver on the hope that we have in him first Peter 1 13 says wherefore gird up the loins of your mind be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ so our hope is in him alone now secondly Christian hope manifests itself in strategic action so first our hope is in God himself. Secondly, Christian hope manifests itself in strategic action. We saw that in our, our uh, text here in Ruth chapter 3. So this second aspect of Christian hope manifests itself in strategic action. So this is really important. Hope is active. Hope moves. Hope doesn't just stand still. Hope does something. And in the first four verses of this passage of Scripture, Naomi is full of hope, so she comes up with a plan 
and she implements it. She doesn't just sit there, you know, um, like the old phrase, like a bump on a log. She, she actually moves. She does something. She has hope, and that hope leads her to action, strategic action. Christians with little hope or confidence in the Lord do not engage in strategic planning and action. How much do you think about the future of your life? It's a hard question. And probably the older you are, the more you are is the sad part. Um, when really it should be the other way around, if we're honest about it. Um, but it's not. Uh, the older we get, the more we think about the future, and especially about the things of the Lord. So I would encourage you young people, be strategic in your thinking about your future through hope, in a hopeful way. What is God leading me to do in my life? What does God want for my life? What, what, what do I expect from God in my life? Do I have an expectation from God? All of those questions are important for you to think about. So people without hope, they, they keep the status quo because they're more afraid of, afraid of ruffling feathers than they are of radically and dangerously and sometimes with risk pursuing truth and the Great Commission. I'll be honest, it's, it's been a little bit depressing. I've been working on this project of the 1689 Confession, and we've been talking a lot about the history of our people in the Primitive Baptists, and I wrote a, a message to some of the brothers that are working with me the other day, and I said, I just hope there's enough courage left <laughs> that, that we will stand up and, and make a stand for the things that are true. I hope that that is true. There's some hope there. But when we lose that hope, um, that's when it's not a good place to be. So we can take calculated risks because we trust in the character of God. When, in other words, you know, when I say take calculated risks, we're not saying be risky. I don't think the Bible tells you to do that. But I do think the Bible tells you to step out on faith sometimes. Is it risky to go to Africa to preach the gospel? It is. I'm, I mean, Brother Nathan knows. He had a car wreck that could have been, you know, not good at all. The Lord protected him. But would it have been any different if the Lord didn't protect them? Would they still have been following what the Lord told them to do? Absolutely. So when we say calculated risk, we mean trust in doing the right thing, that that is, that is right because of who God is, and we trust that. So it, it leads us to action, and we don't worry about the consequences so much. If you live for God, there's going to be consequences for it in this life. But Christian hope says that that strategic action takes place anyway. Luke 14, 25 through 33. And there were great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. <coughs> and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it. Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. This is a really interesting passage because here's what's going on. He's combining two things in this passage, planning and thinking ahead and hope for the future and being a disciple. 
He says, if you're a disciple, you better count the cost. You better think about the future. And your hope better be in the Lord because there's going to be a cost. Um, and he says, if you're not doing any planning, you're a fool. You know, you don't, you don't start building something. I hope we have enough money to finish this back here, right? If we started building that and we had $5,000 in the bank, everybody driving up down the road would say, look at those foolish people. They started building that and they didn't have enough money to finish it. And now it's just sitting there rotting in a way. Well, we, we did a little planning, right? We decided, okay, I think we've got enough money. We can go ahead and start building. That's exactly what he's saying here, but he's doing it in the context of being a disciple. So being a disciple of God, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, leads us to Christian hope, which leads itself to strategic action. Now, the third thing is Christian hope manifests itself also in integrity. So there's action. It manifests itself. Real Christian hope manifests itself by action taking place, strategic action, but it also manifests itself in integrity. Hopeful people meet the challenges of life head on with integrity. If you remember, I read that quote from John Piper at the very beginning. He said, what was it that led to lying and cheating and stealing? It's hopelessness. People think they have to, you know, it's just me. That's, that's all I got. So I better make a way somehow. I can't, I can't do right because there's no hope in that. So it's hopelessness that leads to a lack of integrity. But those with hope, it causes people those with Christian hope, uh, Christian hope causes people to meet challenges and temptations and the temptations of life with integrity. And that's what we see in Boaz and Ruth in this passage. They meet um, all the temptations of that situation. I think if we look at that situation and say that there wasn't temptation there, that's also faulty. I said we can't look at that and say that Naomi's plan was, was wrong because of the law. But at the same time, I think we all must admit there was a lot of temptation in that situation. But both Ruth and Boaz met it with integrity because their hope was in the Lord. They had Christian hope. Instead of giving in to temptation, he honors Ruth. And with his goodness and kindness, he shows integrity. Uh, that's a real man. That's someone with really uh, true Christian hope. Boaz really cares for Ruth. And so he chooses to subordinate his desires for what God's word said was right. He refuses to go outside of the boundaries of God's word in order to get what he wants. He wants to marry Ruth. He's made that clear, right? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything you've asked. That's my intention, but I've got to do it right, and I've got to go. And if this other man chooses that he's going to, uh, then, then that's what's right. So he's putting his uh, wants and desires on the back burner and says, we're going to do what's right according to God's word. We need a lot more young men and women like that in the world today and older men and women as well. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. <clears throat> My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. I had to read the whole passage, because if I just read the end, I would kill all this hope that we're talking about, right? Because what, what does that passage say? It says, if you're truly a follower of the Lord, if you truly have hope in Christ, then there's going to be some evidence of that in your life. 
You're going to obey what he says. There's going to be integrity in your life. You're going to do the right thing. You're going to follow through and do those commandments that he said. But do we do that perfectly? No. That's why the beginning of the chapter says, um, My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He knows we're going to sin. We're going to have, but we have an advocate. But there's going to be a, a general pattern of integrity in the life of someone who has true Christian hope. And now the last one is that Christian hope manifests itself in generosity. Christian hope manifests itself in generosity. So Ruth takes, the story of Ruth takes place in the day and, and age of the judges. And what was, what was the typical description of that time period with the judges? What was it that was said about that time period? It was said that during the period of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that interesting? So that's the context that this story is taking place. Well, Boaz is the exception to the rule of this period of time, evidently, because Boaz did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Boaz makes provision in his field for the poor and the destitute to come along and glean. And Boaz goes beyond that and demonstrates abundant, gracious generosity to Ruth by giving her about a month's worth of food in one day. And he gives her even more in chapter 3. Remember at the end of our story today, what was the last thing that Boaz did? He said, okay, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go work this out, and I'm going to work on this, but you need to go home to your mother-in-law. And remember what Ruth told Naomi that he had said? You can't go back empty-handed. So here, so she got her cloak, and she used it like a basket, and he filled it with food to, for her to take back. So his generosity showed once again, even in this story. And in the end, God honors his generosity uh, because in the end, he's going to be an ancestor of King David and ultimately of the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. So um, hopeful people are generous people because hopeful people believe God will honor their generosity in this life and in the next, just like he did with Boaz. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath nor moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Christian hope manifests itself in gracious generosity. So I hope um, that by going through this story, you were able to see the difference in a life of hope and a life that lacks hope and where our hope is found is in the Lord. Uh, just like when Ruth came to Boaz and, and I asked this question earlier, have you come to Christ in that way? Our hope for salvation is in no other than Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, but in the name of of Jesus Christ. So we come to him as our redeemer. We throw ourselves at his feet. We bring nothing, uh, but he has everything. He is the king of the universe. He has all power. And so we can trust in him and our hope is in him and our hope in him will never be disappointed.